Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. The 54th New York Film Festival is now in full swing. We opened last Friday with Ava DuVernay's powerful documentary, 13th, and will continue through October 16th with some of the best cinema, new and old, from around the world. 13th deconstructs the pattern of mass criminalization of African Americans in the United States since the passing of the 13th Amendment, which ostensibly ended slavery. The film compiles interviews with influential activists and leaders, including Angela Davis, Michelle Alexander, Newt Gingrich, and Senator Cory Booker, to tell the tragic and infuriating story of institutionalized racism in this country. The day after the premiere, many of the film's subjects reconvened for a panel discussion moderated by the Film Society's Deputy Director, Eugene Hernandez. It was the first in this year's edition of our free NYFF Live talk series, which occur every night during the festival starting at 7 p.m. in the amphitheater of the Eleanor Bunin Monroe Film Center. For more information, check out filmlink.org NYFF. The panelists for our 13th panel discussion were Ashley Clark, Jelani Cobb, Mulkia Cyril, Kevin Gannon, and Khalil Gibran Muhammad. Let's go to that now. So again, over the course of this conversation, we'll get we'll get in we'll get more deeply into each person's um, background. I wanted to start um, with Ashley because I want to I want to start with kind of the place where Thirteenth starts. Um, I want to talk about representations of black culture, representations of black men uh, in cinema. We're at a film festival, um, and for those who have seen 13th, or for those who will see it, um, I'm not giving too much away to say that um, very early in the film, we look at, how many people have seen D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation? Birth of a Nation, raise your hand. Okay. Um, right? I mean, it's, it, I, I was saying to somebody the other day, I, I saw it in college at UCLA, and it has such a profound, uh, impact on me. I don't. It's a movie that I don't think I ever want to see again, and yet I don't feel like I can ever forget. Uh, and yeah. I want Ashley to. Um, well, I'd be curious to hear Ashley. Um, you talk about the impact of that film, not only in the way that Ava references it in this movie, but what was the impact of that film on other cinema that followed, that immediately followed. Yeah, I just want to clarify first by saying that I wasn't in the film at all. I wasn't left on the cutting room floor or anything. It's, uh, <laughs> but you've written about it already. Yeah. Um, the, the Birth of a Nation um, is a film that I was taught at university. Um, the faculty introduced it as, as what we call problematic, you know, which is pretty apparent. You, know, you, need to, you can watch one or two frames of that film. Problematic is the least of your worries. Um, in terms of the impact it had on cinema, there was a film that was discovered in the MoMA archives from 1913, which starred uh, a kind of vaudevillian performer by Burt Williams. I don't know who in the audience knows Burt Williams. And this film was a, a, kind, of, a kind of romantic comedy. Um, Burt Williams did wear blackface. He was the only cast member in, a, in an all-black cast to wear blackface, who was kind of, he took that on from his vaudeville traditions. And this film came out in 1913, and they didn't have the funding to, to finish it. By the time it was kind of ready, Birth of a Nation came along mm -hmm. in 1915. And 
it kind of effectively poisoned the well. I mean, the 13th does a, excuse me, 13th, as it's, as it's now known, does a, a wonderful job of kind of explaining the, the effect it had, not just on, on representation, but, um, but politically and socially, it became a recruitment tool for, for the KKK. Um, and, the, you know, it had a, a political government endorsement. And there were films being made by uh, filmmakers like Oscar Misha, and, and later Spencer Williams. So th these are things called race movies, which are independent African-American cinema, which um, in you know, segregated times, which were made predominantly for black audiences. But these are films that never had the benefit of widespread distribution. Only this year, uh, a box set came out, uh, released by Kino Lorba, called Pioneers of African-American Cinema, which um, kind of brings together so many of these lost films that um, just show you normal life, um, in interior life, that, you know, is not, it, you know, these films are interesting on their own terms and, you know, you can analyze them, but it just shows you how far, how far Birth of a Nation pushed it in one way mm -hmm. and how much it really, and I repeat the phrase, poisoned the well. And I think it really did that for, for, for many progressive filmmakers. There was a film called Birth of a Race that, was, uh, that a black filmmaker tried to put together a few years later. Um, but couldn't, couldn't complete the funding, the studios got hold of it, uh, made it a white hero story. Um, so there was uh, NAACP resistance to the film Birth of a Nation. There was kind of protests and it was shut down in, in many cities across America. Mm -hmm. But as we can see, we're still talking about it now, um, that, that the influence of that film has endured. And I think uh, Ava's film does a very good job of kind of setting out the stall of, of, of how powerful it was. What was the what was the quote from uh, the then president? Um, the like, film was like allegedly history with with lightning, and and my only regret is that it's also terribly true. In uh, introducing the film last night at the here at the New York Film Festival opening night, uh, festival director Kent Jones said that um, the Thirteenth rewrites history with lightning. Um, well, what it does, it, it puts uh, an incredible lineage together in the same way that uh, Tanahasi Coates' piece from, from two years ago, which kind of things that kind of, you know, you have a kind of intellectual knowledge of, but it's to put so many things in one place, mm -hmm. in, in one condensed space of time. And um, the film draws such a clear line from then to now, mm -hmm. and it does it in such a skillful way. Um, and I think that's one of the most powerful aspects of the film. I want to get to um, some very specific aspects of the film as we dig into this discussion, but I wanted to start with a more general question that's very topical. Um, is there anybody in this room that did not watch the debate the other night? Um, okay. I'm, I asked that because there was a moment in the, fi in the film, the debate, um, <laughs> in the debate when um, the two candidates were asked so a very specific question about race in this country today, and this question is for anybody on the panel to kind of start our conversation. Um, and I'll tell you how I felt. I, I, I heard the question and then I heard two very different answers, but in the case of both answers, I found personally that um, there was a tremendous amount of care, caution, I felt, about how those answers were pursued, um, as if to suggest that um, maybe the topic was even more complex than could be explored in that moment, or um, than perhaps 
each of the candidates were either able to explore or wanted to explore. Uh, and um, well, I want to start there, and I want to see if um, if anyone else on this panel felt that uh, felt similarly or differently. I'd be curious to hear how you each or anyone took that those responses. Well, I'll say that. Uh, I thought that uh, Hillary Clinton was the stiffest I've ever seen her in answering a question that she's been stomping on for months now, really since April. Uh, she rolled out her African-American policy agenda. And she's been very uh, specific in her admonishment of white America and its unwillingness and inability to listen uh, to the longstanding grievances of black America. Here. Uh, she was very carefully ticking off talking points. If you watched her eyes, she looked down at her notes. Uh, she had none of the emotionalism and passion. And, and it was disturbing in the sense that you know, this is really uh, the, the first moment for her national uh, coming out uh, because she could in some ways speak to these issues uh, to black audiences or to liberal ones or progressive ones, even though they're covered in the media to some degree. Uh, I also just want to say that the framing of the question was problematic. It was a racial healing question. Yeah. And, uh, and that, that seemed to invite uh, a much more cautious approach. And of course, I'll leave it to others to talk about uh, Trump's response to the birther question. I, I think there's a thing that, had, that kind of ties these first two questions together. <clears throat> and that is that um, we look at D.W. Griffith's film, we look at Birth of a Nation as a kind of epic of early 20th century race, racialist thought, uh, which it is. But uh, as I was saying in the film, he wasn't simply kind of talking about the past. The film was released on the 50th anniversary of the conclusion of the Civil War in 1915, and the film was intended to be a proposal he was putting forward a proposition saying that uh, the country remained divided 50 years after the Civil War with lingering animosities between white Northerners and white Southerners, and the path of their reunification could be found in their mutual contempt for Negroes. That's why it's called Birth of a Nation. And he's making this proposition. The racism of that film doesn't bother me as much as the fact that, it, that he was right. That is what the 20th century, the ensuing history of the 20th century looked like. And uh, when I saw Donald Trump, a person who is as New York as you can possibly get, with that thickly pronounced Queens accent, with standing room only crowds in Montgomery, Alabama, I said, D.W. Griffith, he's right. Now, what also happened with Griffith's film was that they, had a, they produced a rebirth of the Klan, a Klan that was more ecumenical in its hatred. Uh, and initially, it hated Negroes. That was their, their kind of stock and trade. The second Klan hated Negroes, hated Catholics, hated Jews, was very contemptuous of immigrants. And the heir of this is a person who began his political campaign by saying that Mexicans are rapists. And so there is a direct lineage. It is not uncommon, it's not unrelated, that he has creamed everybody in, sub in the southern primaries. No one could come close to him. 
And then uh, even over the objections of Nikki Haley, the Indian American governor of South Carolina, he killed Marco Rubio in South Carolina not long after, like the kind of resonant thing that we think about that state is Dylan Roof killing nine people in the Emanuel AME Church. And the th final thing that I'll say about this is that one thing that we forget is that uh, Dylan Roof killed those people on June 17th of 2015. Donald Trump announced his presidential campaign on June 16th. There was less than 24 hours between the announcement of that campaign and Dylan Ruth's act of atrocity in that church in South Carolina. I don't think there's a cause and effect, but I think these things are linked in history as a part of the same zeitgeist. And just to, to jump on that as well, I think I had the, a similar reaction to Khalil watching Hillary Clinton try to, to very woodenly make her way through uh, that answer. And, what it really underscored for me was exactly what Jelani was talking about, this power of, in this case, white fear, white fragility, right? You know, the first opportunity for Hillary on a national stage to really kind of put her money where her mouth is in terms of what she'd been doing on the campaign trail. And it seemed almost as if she sort of confronted in, in all its stature, you know, poking the bear. You know, but what happens if I go too far and, you know, white voters, the white working class, whatever euphemism that we're going to use for this larger sense of white anxiety and white fragility, if you threaten that on the national stage and you undercut this nationalism, which has a, a, an extraordinarily powerful racial underpinning to it, what's going to happen? And I can almost see her sort of kind of looking over the edge and then just sort of very tentatively stepping back. Did you read this, Malkia? How did you how did you process? How did you take in what you were hearing? First of all, I hate the debates, so let me say fair enough. Me fair enough. Um, let me fix this too. I'm gonna stand up for a second so I can make this work. There we go. Uh, here's the thing: Hil Hillary Clinton is betting on her white womanhood, um, you know, being uh, a selling point. Um, you know, the fact that she brought up in one of the previous debates, you know, the mothers of the movement and, and talked to, you know, black mothers and who had lost their children with such passion and compassion and she's counting on womanhood, right? And white, white womanhood being the, the, the thing that can overcome, um, that can be the vehicle to talk about race. But in, in, in everything that, that I've witnessed and experienced is that race at this point is a PR point for her, right? So she's using it either to sell or not to sell. Um, and, and I think the same is true for Donald Trump. So whether you're mobilizing white resentment or you're mobilizing a kind of racial liberalism, it doesn't matter. Either way, you're still mobilizing on the back of, of white nationalism. And so I think that um, depending, you know, you can package it any way you like, but it's essentially the same beast. So I found myself, um, with that in mind, I found myself watching the 13th again yesterday for a second time, or watching 13th for a second time. Gotta get the title right. Um, thinking about um, aspects of what each of you have just discussed uh, or, or trying to process uh, or get to a point of understanding what, what the film hopes to address in terms of a national dialogue um, in the context of a cultural moment or climate in which it's really hard to have the conversation. Um, or at least it's really hard for individuals 
trying to, who are vying for the presidency of this country to lead a conversation uh, when that conversation um, is surely no more important. Just look at what's happened in North Carolina, in other parts of the country, even in the past two weeks. Um, the film 13 seeks to look at so much of what's happened in this country over more than 100 years, and yet um, Ava was talking last night about how she hopes, she wants to end the film on a note of hope. Um, to what extent um, is a film perhaps uh, necessary to help address or open up some of these conversations? To what extent is a film even capable of carrying all the weight on its shoulders of that challenge when it's hard for us to even have that conversation on the national level right now? I would just say that I'm, I'm delighted that Netflix have put their support behind it. And it's very important that it's a, a black woman who has this power to make this film. Um, and who has this kind of, the, the way we communicate and message has changed rapidly. You know, obviously social media has given rise to so many voices, yeah. hitherto marginalized. And Ava leads that conversation online, as well as making films, supporting other filmmakers, releasing films by filmmakers like Haile Gerima, um, Ashes and Embers from, from 1982, which is a film that hadn't really seen the light of day until uh, Ava's company re-released it this year. So she's doing the most in terms of um, bringing black filmmakers to light. And I'm so glad that she's at the forefront of this conversation and has authorship. I think we're always talking about authorship, who has access to funds, because I'm, I'm constantly in, a, in a dis discussions with institutions about diversity and the idea that di uh, diversity itself is a word I'm not hugely fond of, but the idea that, okay, if we cast a, a black bus driver, you know, get, get a guy on screen, that's diversity. It's more than that. It's about who has access to funds, who can, you know, who's telling the story and who can put that across. And that's what kind of strikes me the most about who's really being able to tell this story and the influence that Ava has now. And I would also just add to that, yeah. I would also add that one of the things that I think makes, um, you know, Ava's work in this regard and, and in terms of all the other films that she's produced and, and the um, production of films so special is that right now we're living in a, in a moment where media is so consolidated, where, um, you know, stories about blackness are, are reserved for stories about crime and those stories are episodic at best. So where, you know, if you don't have, um, if journalism has been placed on the auction block, so to say, right, on the, on the stock market, let's call it, let's talk about it that way, um, you know, then, then where do you have the room for long form conversations about race, right? Where is that space outside of art, right? Outside of art, outside of protest, outside of these spaces, certainly, um, you know, and you know, unless you're dealing with high, high levels of academia, but certainly not in our public school system, certainly not on our mainstream media outlets, right? So where? And so that's one of the service that I think that Ava's film does is it uh, gives this long form opportunity to have a very deep, very thoughtful conversation that just isn't happening in too many other places. Mm 
And, and I just wanted to quickly go back to, to Birth of a Nation. And I was thinking about a film like Fruitvale Station that came out three years ago. The, the influence of something like Birth of a Nation is such that in 2013, it's, it's radical to have a film which humanizes, quote unquote, a guy who was killed for the crime of being black and nothing else. And even then, some critics would say, oh, this film sanctifies Oscar Grant. And I've never been angrier as a journalist than reading some of that stuff. Um, and that's the lasting legacy of it. And, and I'm just so glad that there are more voices coming through now. Well, the, I think the way that this film and art and, and, and popular expression in general contribute is, is that our political discourse is not set up for the type of conversations that we need to have as a society because this is a structural issue and speaking you know we as in you know white society and mainstream uh, society we don't like to have structural conversations because then you start thinking about how you're implicated in certain structures mm. and well i didn't agree for this to happen but i'm still benefiting from it uh, and that's really tough work and it's really hard work but it's absolutely necessary and overdue work but we're not in a rhetorical space or a political space where that work can be done uh, and so what has to happen is pressure from the outside of that space, other spaces, artistic spaces, cultural spaces, to, to bring that systemic element into our political discourse where it's just sadly lacking. There's one thing that's, that's interesting uh, is I think that we'll have this conversation one way or another, and Ferguson established that, uh, that you know, at one point, uh, you know, it was easier for people to sweep these kinds of things under the rug. And in 2011, there were all these uh, really grand, optimistic essays and, and a lot of reportage that people were writing about the Arab Spring uh, and all these things that were happening. And it's no longer possible for repressive governments to hide their repression. And you know, democracy, democratizing, you know, there's a democratizing force. But people didn't actually realize that you know, they could look in their own backyard and say, well, there are non-anti-democratic practices that you have that people can document and expose now. And so you have media that are covering these stories because the stories are ambient at this point. They're ubiquitous. Everyone knows this, so you're kind of forced to report on it. And I think that it runs into uh, the, to, to your point uh, uh, about the uh, resistance to it. Like what we're seeing on the other side is a kind of enforced white innocence. An idea that you know, we want to be absolved, we want to have nothing to do with something from which we've benefited. And you know, it seems like D.W. Griffith is everywhere in this conversation because I, I always think of him as the ancestral white man um, and the reason I think that is that after Birth of a Nation, he produced another film called Tolerance. And people have misunderstood that film. They thought that he produced a film called Tolerance in order to um, make up for the overt racism of Birth of a Nation. But it wasn't. He was actually telling black people to be tolerant of his free speech. He was accusing his black critics of intolerance. And so this was the first time kind of the, the ancestor of you're the real racist when someone had been called on their racial uh, antagonism and then flips the table and says that he is actually the person being oppressed and exploited. And it, when we look at public opinion and polling data now, one of the things that scares the hell out of me uh, 
is that in particular demographics, you can find a majority of white people who will tell you that white people are the most disadvantaged group in American society. Uh, this is at odds with every empirical indicator that we know in this country, but it explains better than any other single metric I can think of why Donald Trump is the current Republican nominee. When you are accustomed to privilege, even the hint of equality feels like oppression. That's right. The context for Birth of a Nation is, of course, uh, 1915. 1915 isn't just uh, a half century from uh, the Civil War. It's also a moment when you could find uh, the most thoughtful people, uh, and mostly liberal, saying that it was a post-Civil Rights era, uh, that the dawn of equality had arrived. Uh, it's hard for most of us to think about that. It, it seems so counterintuitive to us uh, from what we've learned and, and certainly the, the stories that have been passed on. But the truth is that people just like this in rooms just like this were gathering from Boston to Chicago uh, to um, Detroit, Cleveland, you know, everywhere across the North uh, to have a conversation about what black people were going to now do to carry the load. Uh, to pick themselves up and move the ball forward uh, because the laws had been fixed. Black men had the right to vote. There was due process under the law. That sort of weird Supreme Court decision in Plessy versus Ferguson wasn't to be read literally. Um, it was itself a gesture towards a political and civil equality while recognizing that there were still social differences that didn't really matter. And the reason I point that out is because uh, in our contemporary moment, we've been living uh, with this mythology about it being, you know, it, we call it post-racial, but of course it is very much a post-civil rights uh, era in terms of how people understood everything leading up to Trayvon Martin's death and Michael Brown and Eric Garner and so on and so forth. And all of that has only happened in the past 36 months. And I think that's the key problem that we still face. Because in the end, people are going to believe what they want to believe in spite of all the knowledge and expertise, all the magical ways that you can translate knowledge into something bite-sized and digestible. Um, I mean, if we can't beat climate change, like the one thing <laughs> that guarantees that all of humanity uh, will go down in a ball of flames, a literal one, um, then it, it, you know, it does feel very difficult um, to move the needle on something very much a subset of our society. So I want to both capture the optimism of a cultural product uh, that can move the needle, but I also want to remind people, uh, you know, an old phrase that Martin Luther King often used, which was that it was up to the creative minority of the concerned. Um, that at the end of the day, um, you're not going to pick off uh, Trump supporters in any substantial way, it's going to be actually the people in this room that are dissatisfied and uncomfortable enough to move from consuming much of what they already know, right? I mean, most of the people in this room raised their hand and said that they'd seen the movie, D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. They're going to have to move from, you know, being part of the cultural practice of anti-racism conversations uh, to something that looks much more like holding a whole lot of people much more accountable. 
and making a whole lot of people uncomfortable who don't self-select themselves into these conversations. You know, uh, just one point on that that, that um, you made me think about something. You know, Asada Shakur, um, you know, talked about um, change never coming from appealing to the moral center of those who oppress, who oppress you, right? And that that idea kind of fundamentally also goes against a lot of um, communications theory, you know, which is like you should appeal to the moral center of those who oppress you, those who have power. And I think that there's a, just a interesting contradiction, right, about the difference between um, ideological power and material power. And what we, and how we need to build strategies that actually move both. Um, and they often get pitted against each other, right, this idea of moving hearts and minds and how we have to, you know, get, get in there and really shape how people, what people believe so that we can move the needle and also that we need to change laws and make, you know, make these changes that are concrete in a particular way and that's how we move the needle and that somehow we forget that these things actually have to happen in tandem, they happen together and without one, like the other thing doesn't happen. So I just think it's a very interesting uh, moment to be thinking about like what are the ways we think about what is the moral center of the nation, where is it, uh, and, and, and who, who is the nation we're talking about when we're trying to appeal? Well, so, so I, as you guys were just talking, I was thinking about something, and that is um, we talked about in the beginning of this conversation um, a response to the debate, and we talked about the way Hillary Clinton answered the question uh, the other day. Um, Donald Trump's answer was very much in line with um, a whole thread that's explored in 13th. Um, we can put aside just for a second the chilling use of the term law and order um, and seeing in this film how that directly links to uh, Nixon, President Nixon. Um, but there's a way in which in his answer and in this film we explore or Ava explores um, how crime stands in when you want to talk about race. Um, it becomes, in some cases, almost immediately a conversation about crime. Um, I wonder to what extent, I was thinking about this as each of you were just talking, I wonder to what extent um, the nomination of Donald Trump, how the nomination of Donald Trump and what's happened just even over the past six months in this country surrounding the presidential election has complicated your own thinking about the work you've been doing. Um, how did it, how has it, if at all, challenged your understanding of either what's going on in this country or, 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 or um, well, I guess I'll leave it there. Has, has the nomination of Donald Trump complicated your own work? Your own, what you think you know or what you thought you know or what you do know about this country. It confirms everything I know about this country. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, was talking, I was talking with a colleague um, and we were at a, a dinner and someone said, uh, I was a, a Republican, talking to a Republican and um, another colleague of mine, a historian who's kind of also on the left politically, and he, he said he couldn't understand how Donald Trump had been nominated. And he, I, he said, you know, was this shocking to me? Weren't you shocked? And I said, no. 
And he said, why weren't you shocked? And I said, because I teach about reconstruction. Yeah. Like, I, this is exactly what happened. And every point at which there has been a moment of racial progress in this country, there's been a moment, a concomitant moment of racial backlash. Like, that's how this worked. People, the South has still not forgiven black people for being emancipated, like for the sin of no longer being enslaved. And so we've seen this dynamic, and even when in 2008 we had this euphoric moment where everyone was talking about the election of the first black president, I was talking to public policy people who were saying, we are going to pay for this. Um, as a matter of fact, one of my uh, colleagues who said the Voting Rights Act is done said this in 2008, and that turned out to be prophetic and true. And so the, the entire edifice upon which this moment was constructed led us to understand that this that we didn't, couldn't predict the exact form in which it would take place, but nothing about this is out of, out of character for the history of this country. Nor would I suggest that it's out of character really in modern global history, period. Uh, one of the, a lot of the writing I've been doing lately is on this trope of American exceptionalism. And you cannot look at the nomination of Trump and the movement that has arisen in support of it and make a serious intellectual argument that America is somehow exceptional. Uh, because what Trump represents is not only this, this cycle that Jelani just referred to of, you know, every action produces a, a furious uh, and opposite reaction, but look at anti-blackness around the globe. Uh, look at the ways in which you know imperialism, either in earlier centuries or modern-day neoliberal imperialism, impacts people of color around the globe, and how people uh, of color are pathologized as the you know whether it was in the 18th and 19th century as the savage Hottentots, or today of you know the euphemism we use as developing nations, as if people had not fully developed themselves. And I think that the way that we deploy language. Uh, and, and use those words to refer to peoples and societies. Just, you know, we don't even think it's like the fish that swims through water and doesn't know what water is, right? We're the same way in that we're not interrogating these concepts enough. And so Trump, you know, you can look at far-right populism in Europe. You can look at the larger, you know, uh, anti-blackness movement that has glorified these ideals and that has, you know, that whole litany to, to make that argument now is to be willfully ignorant. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the global thing. Um, I'd like to take the opportunity to say that in the United Kingdom since 1990, there's been uh, 157 police-related uh, deaths of black and brown people um, and zero convictions. Um, we have our own very serious problems, and you talked about how our work has been affected. Uh, back in June, some of you will be familiar with, with Brexit, which was the, uh, the Great Britain, Great, Great Britain, um, our, our exit from, from the European Union, which may or may not happen in, in six to eight years, I'm hearing today, um, which was entirely motored by anti-immigrant rhetoric. Um, and there is a direct link to the rise of the far right in Europe and with what's going on with Trump, augmented by what you see every day on the internet, a global, a global connection of, of hatred fermenting in comment sections under any article that mentions race. Um, and, it, and it's kind of, it is all connected. Do a Google search for Nigel Farage, Donald Trump. Well, he's, he's coming get. over to coach him, right. I, I learned today. 
So, so one of the things I want to I want to add to this about how how I've thought about Trump differently uh, over these you know last year is how are other billionaires thinking about their their colleague and peer um, and those who aspire to be billionaires because there's no question that with the tremendous inequality that has been building over the past 30 years in this country. Um, it has had a trickle-down uh, effect on the hopes, dreams, and aspirations um, of people you know, who are making um, five-figure salaries. And you know, Joe the Plumber is just sort of the archetypal representation of this from the 2008 campaign who you know, told Obama he didn't want to be taxed at the highest tax rate, um, even though he was making about $25,000 a year and hadn't paid tax on that. But the problem, I think, in part with this global economic inequality is that our populations are both bristling from that inequality, but have not, in some ways, yet seeded the aspiration to be like them. So you have this strange contradiction at the heart of this, which is that the world is set up to favor the rich, and we little people are losing but at the end of the day, what they really want is a system that, that feels like if there's just a, a couple of adjustments, I can be just like them. And to me, this is important because this explains why in so many social settings that I move in and out of, you know, rich people, it's almost like a circus spectacle on the side for them. You know, Trump, Trump doesn't really pose any inherent threat to the global economic order that favors billionaires. And so the people who we've ceded, we collectively have ceded tremendous power and authority to, the Bill Gates is on down, and I'm not imputing, you know, I don't know what's in his or her heart, he, he or Melinda, but I'm saying, you know, we've let all the rich people essentially decide how we should run everything, from their own companies to the boys and girls clubs to tiny little charter schools and little neighborhoods here and there. Simply because they're rich, we just assume that they know how to do things and how to align uh, somehow our collective values. He said that. Trump said that. Right. Yeah. So, so we're complicit in this. And, and to the extent that I'm in these spaces, and it, it, someone told me a long time ago, and I just want to share this. Um, I, I was working at Vera Institute of Justice. They do good work in the space of criminal justice reform. And, uh, and the president of Vera, Nick Turner, is in, in, is in 13th. Uh, but a colleague of mine who, who did work on favelas and work in South Central Los Angeles and, and was really working on a kind of global theory of genocide, sort of the soft, the soft annihilation of people, um, not the militarized um, massacres, but you know, how do you starve a people to death um, in every way? And he was frustrated and he said, you know, Khalil, for the people we work with, this is a nine to five job. And so they do good work from nine to five. And then it's time to go home. And although I didn't fully embrace that darker view of, of our colleagues collectively, I do think it applies to the Billionaire Club. And I think it applies um, in its capacity to compel many of us to let them off the hook. You know, they're gonna continue to do what they do, whether it's Trump or Hillary, um, or whomever takes over, or whether the Great Britain leaves. And the people are responding to that, but in the wrong way. But here's, here's the thing that I think is interesting. And um, so 
we have this, this dynamic in which Trump, and you can see this among colleagues, many people who I respect greatly, um, but you know, kind of political and political journalism uh, in the whole array of arenas who have sought everything as the magic key to explain Trumpism beyond racism. And so, be, oh, it's, uh, you know, they believe in his capacity as a businessman, he's going to fix everything. No, because Mitt Romney could not have gotten away with the sort of things that Donald Trump has gotten away with. There's a particular kind of psychology around him that people have become enmeshed in. And they said, well, it's economic anxiety. But no, blacks and Latinos are the most economically marginal people in the society, and they're overwhelmingly opposed to Trump. There is a racial identity factor that is at play here. And if you saw um, uh, Machiko Kakatani's review, the new Hitler biography, which was a kind of master piece of subtweeting, yeah. um, <laughs> in which she didn't ever mention Donald Trump. She just talked about the characteristics of Hitler and how identical they were and how shockingly, frighteningly similar these traits were. Uh, the thing that stood out to me about that was this. It was like, the problem is that Germany turned to fascism as a result of national humiliation, which is what people typically say makes people, societies predisposed toward fascism. The idea of national humiliation, and then people turn to someone who says that they'll make them great again. The United States has turned toward fascism to respond to the actual advent of the appearance of democracy with the election of a black president. So it's like for them, the idea of national humiliation is that maybe, just maybe, the Negroes are not completely beneath your boot anymore. And that concludes our talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm pausing for a moment. Um, in a moment, we're going to take some questions from the audience uh, as a transition to that and taking in everything that I just heard, which was um, thank you for being so insightful and, and sharing so much with us today, everybody. Um, Ashley, I want to ask you to, um, well, I, I thought of something as Jelani was speaking, and that is I wonder to what extent um, cinema, the arts, cinema, um, shows any signs of parallel over history with or connects to some of what Jelani was talking about. Steps forward, backlash. Steps forward, backlash. Do we see uh, a response in the arts? Do we see it? And, tell, and, and, and before you tell me that, you're doing a series. You're going to London tomorrow? On Monday. On Monday. Tell us about um, the series you're curating, and then, and then if you could answer the question yeah, in that I've, context. I programmed a 10-week series at the British Film Institute in London entitled Black Star, which is a 103-year history of black stardom in different territories, in, in US, in the UK, and in Europe. What black stardom has meant to, to different audiences in different communities. So there's, there's space for, for race movies. There are, we want to get some bums on seats. There are bigger movies too. I wanted to look at the, the work of the LA Rebellion too. And you know, the work of filmmakers like Charles Burnett and, and Judy Dash. And, and um, look at stardom in all of its, you know, from top to bottom. So the, the iconography, um, there's a line I love that James Baldwin wrote about uh, Sidney Poitier being able to smuggle uh, reality into, into roles that were not in the scripts. 
Um, so what his stardom meant and what he was allowed to do, the roles he was allowed to play. And when he became a director, the, 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 the level of control he had over his own material. So the, the program's very ambitious. Um, it covers a, a lot of ground. You know, I haven't been able to put in everything that I wanted, but we've subdivided it into you know, eight or nine different sections um, and very much looking forward to sharing it with, with people. There will be a tie-in book um, as well, and it's a nationwide project too. So we're kind of empowering communities all over uh, the UK to, to program their own things from a, from a centrally collected um, booking system. So yeah, check out the website, bfi.org.uk forward slash Blackstar for more information. Come to London. Um, now, to answer your question, um, there's a word that has been used a lot about this film, about, about 13th, which is timely, which is a word that I've used in the past, but it's a, it's a word that kind of makes me bristle a little because Do the Right Thing was timely in 1989, Boys in the Hood was timely in 1991, Malcolm X was timely in 92, Clockers in 96, Fruitvale Station was timely when it came out. And when every film is timely, and it's about black people dying, what's the logical end point from that? Um, so that, that's kind of a, what, one way to answer your question. Um, backlashes, um, there, there've been kind of many different booms over the years, um, and something that's interesting now is television. I'm watching things like Atlanta uh, and Queen Sugar, which are, which are things that kind of, it feels different. I don't want to get too carried away, but I'm looking at and films like Moonlight by Barry Jenkins, which is in the uh, in the program here. Films that do not uh, films and TV shows that do not necessarily you know they don't need to have a white character to cross over to audiences. They don't need to hold audiences' hands. They're not really interested in that. They're, they're interior and um, you know well-crafted things that are not just about crisis and trauma. They're, they're three-dimensional, and that's something that's happening now, and it excites <coughs> me, and I hope to see more of it. Um, I'd like to take some questions. We're short on microphones, so I'm going to let um, folks use my microphone for questions from the audience. I want to go back to Ava's film for a moment. Um, I saw it for the second time last night, and um, what struck me was, was that not so much the violence and brutality, which in some ways we're used to from the, the social media that we keep seeing this over and over again, but what struck me was the consistent dignity of the brave individuals that we, we saw were being either murdered or harassed. Um, that teenage girl entering the school, which Baldwin said is what brought him back to America in, in, in Negro, he says that, that I should have been there. And my question has to do with Moonlight is a love story. It's a perfect arc in a way. It gives one hope in, in spite of this particular black lives or militarization of the police and murder. How do you attribute all the furor over the new version of Birth of a Nation, which I don't know if any of you have seen it yet, but there was a, almost a white guilt frenzy at Sundance to buy this film and what it represents as a response in a way to Black Lives Matter. So I would like to know what you think people like me should be doing um, rather than running after whatever the new masculinist sort of sensationalized version of response to violence. I've done a little work on the Nat Turner Rebellion, and so the, the birth of the new birth of a nation phenomenon 
as a scholar really resonates with me. But I think what you allude to at Sundance is interesting in this, and, and you know, the idea that here we have this film that, that on its surface level shows black empowerment and retribution and, and, but at the same time, isn't it also this violent pathologizing that's still at the heart of what, you know, both the event, but the film in particular seeks to enhance. And so how are white audiences engaging, you know, with this historical event? You know, it plays into this sort of, well, if I was alive, if I was a slave, I certainly would have resisted because slavery is bad and we all know that you resist bad things. And I think it becomes very easy for us to sort of tell ourselves these stories when we look at this sort of cultural phenomenon, but it's uh, it's a different sort of packaging of what I would argue are sort of the similar similar pathologizing rhetoric. And if I if I could just add to that, um, and just throw in something a little a little different too, um, I actually think that at the risk of you know anyway, films like Birth of a Nation, uh, the new version, I think also package. Um, <clears throat> black history and black, the black historical narrative in patriarchy. And that when you tell that story um, packaged that way, it does appeal to a very specific set of audiences. And I think that um, it is not a three-dimensional telling. And I don't mean Birth of a Nation is not a three-dimensional telling. I mean the story of, the, the story of black experience as told through the lens of patriarchy is not a three-dimensional story. Um, even the story of what is happening today, the murders of black people, it's not the murders of black men. They are black men, women, and children, including trans women who are being murdered. Um, and, and that story is actually the story that the movement is telling. And I think that that's something very different um, it's something that allows us a very many entry points in terms of what to do and how to understand um, our positioning today and also what, what's possible. Um, and I just want to add one thing, which is that the criminalization of the black body is not a male experience. Um, it is an experience that crosses gender um, and that black women black trans women, black children uh, across gender, they are criminalized in a way that that story, and that story needs to be told, and it's one of the things that I think um, Ava's film does in a, in a very interesting way. So I just wanna bring that out as part of the, the thinking here. And I would also urge you to seek out Charles Burnett's Nat Turner film, which is called Nat Turner, A Troublesome Property, and I believe it's available online, and it's very good. Okay, I'm gonna I'm go here. My name is Carl Dix, and look, we need a revolution. That's what we need, and the question isn't just having conversations, but we also need revolution. I think one of the things that the film shows is, you know, to your point, Carl, that we as a society have a faith in political processes and laws and constitutional amendments and all these sort of formal trappings of political change, but Supreme Court decisions, constitutional amendments, legislation, none of these things are self-enforcing, which gets back to the cycle that Jelani pointed out. You can, you know, there was a, a vast sweeping civil rights bill in 1866. You know, we don't know much about it today because it was essentially a dead letter where it was intended to operate. And so 
I think one of the things that the film does effectively is it shows that the legislative process has been a tool oftentimes used for ill instead of good. Even if, however, we use it as a tool for good, we have to understand that that's only the surface level of change and that political will and commitment and movement type organization you know, again, these things aren't self-enforcing, they're not magic solutions. And what, what enables true and lasting social change to have a chance of occurring is confronting the structures. I wanna say, oh. oh I wanna say one thing though, um, Carl, we could have a long conversation about the ability of white supremacy to coexist with communist revolution. Um, that's a conversation we could have. But, but I think that beyond that, one of the other things that concerns me is the kind of temptation of nihilism, um, because it becomes the Donald Trump, what the hell do you have to lose thing? And I'm a optimist, I'm a realistic optimist. Even though um, history is heaped with these indignities that we can trace to their um, corollaries in the present, I still maintain that we're winning, um, and that we have to have that sense. Because if that's the case, Martin Luther King got shot in the neck on that balcony for no reason. It means Malcolm X might as well have not gone to the Audubon that day. It means Frederick Douglass should never have given any of those speeches, or that Septima Clark, or that Harriet Tubman, any of those people we're talking about, it means that they basically accomplished nothing. And beyond it, wait, 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 let me finish the thing. Like from my personal perspective, my personal perspective, I begin this as a person whose father was barely literate. Um, had a second grade education. Father never read a book in his entire life, a whole book in his entire life. And through his work and diligent effort, I was able to be in a place where I write them. That means something. And I think that we have to be mindful that these people who, who suffered indignities actually did move the world in a particular direction. Maybe they haven't moved it there entirely. And maybe, maybe they're not even didn't even have the necessarily tools, the right tools, so I could be wrong. The revolution that you're talking about might be what, what resolves it. But I don't think that it starts from nowhere, as if we're saying that this is 1865 and we're at the point of emancipation. And, and I wanna just you know throw in there that also, this concept, I mean, my, my mom was a Black Panther, my father was in the BLA, the Black Liberation Army, I grew up in the community of Panthers, and here's what's true people use the word revolution a lot, right? I'm sure we all know that. And, um, you know, uh, my, my aunties and my uncles are, um, are, are riding away in prisons um, in, in, the, in the context of that, of that fight for, of that revolution. Um, I, I guess what I wanna say is this. One, revolution is not a moment, it's a process. Two, it's a generational um, and historical process so that we can't, think about, um, just like we can't, we, we don't want to buy into the concept of American exceptionalism, we also want, don't want to buy into the concept that, um, that everything that we're doing right now is a part of that revolution. All the steps that we're taking, all the pieces, including the legislative efforts, all of them, that they move us in a direction generationally, not today, because we're not going to see what I hope to see in my lifetime. That's not going to happen. My mom is dead. She didn't see none of this. And I'm not gonna see none of what's next. But the, the idea that we can move together 
through any number of, of, of means to a, in a direction that in 100 years, 200 years, means something to the people that are there then, um, I think that's what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm working on. That's what I'm about, is this historical process that we're a part of. And I think, yes, that, all of that, that's the revolution that we seek. Um, so I, I, I agree that um, we have to recognize the progress that has been made in this country. Um, but I think we also have to recognize that a lot has not changed. So I, I think the fundamental question that I have, particularly given that there are historians on this panel, is when you um, look back to history to see what can be learned, um, what are your thoughts on how what is essentially a protest movement in Black Lives Matter can be evolved into a movement that actually does um, not only confront but change um, a system of uh, oppression that still exists in this country? Let me, let, me, let me just also real quick just clarify um, because I actually don't think Black Lives Matter, for example, or the movement for Black Lives is a protest movement. It began that way. It began in the street, absolutely, for sure. But the vision for black lives, which is a policy agenda that folks are moving in cities across this country, the fights in Chicago and in other cities to remove prosecutors, the fights to do, you know, to remove mayors. Fight. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? So we are dealing, people are dealing with electoral politics. They're moving legislation. They're, they're, not, they're not simply protesting the cops in the street. But the thing is, the, the narrative that's being told in the news, however. Now, they're not talking about these campaigns that are being run, right, in, in these cities. They're talking about, they, they're showing you graphic images of people in the street. And so I think that we also, it's not so much that we need to move from a protest movement to a movement that's advancing a shared vision, but actually we need to start telling the story where that is actually happening so that people know that that is happening. You feel me? And I, and I want to give one, one contemporary example. Um, so, and this is a partly a, my historian's uh, vision of something revolutionary. <laughs> I mean, so first of all, reading books would be revolutionary in America. Um, I'll speak on that. Uh, it, an educational system that actually teaches critical uh, thinking skills for everyone and not just the elite um, would be revolutionary in America. And of course, getting the actual history of this country from settler colonialism uh, to what slavery actually meant as both a racial and economic system uh, to America's ostensible greatness. And by that I mean great in the orders of magnitude. Uh, those are all revolutionary. And we've had chroniclers, we've had thinkers, everyone from organic intellectuals, people who were autodidacts to the most well-educated talk about the importance of historical literacy, of a population that not only learned from the past, uh, but would have the ability uh, to not repeat those mistakes. And so I'm interested in that kind of revolution as an educator uh, because it is incredibly low-hanging fruit, but it may be the hardest road to travel because people want to hold on 
to a story of American exceptionalism, of American greatness, of the aberration no experiences of people who just happen to be here, but nobody's responsible for what happened to them, none of which is true. And that every institution in America, from its endowments, to its traditions, to its symbols, to its institutional cultures, are tied to these pasts, unmistakably. And our young people, speaking of them, are pushing the envelope on that. So here's the contemporary example about these revolutions. In Chicago, the BLM activists, and they, they, they are of many organizations, but one of the things that they rallied around was to make sure that one, for the first time, people who were victims of police torture receive reparations for police torture. I mean, most of us um, have some kind of uh, visceral response to reparations, either for or against, but m much of it is just that. It's an abstraction. It's, it's, it's our emotional relationship to it. But in fact, uh, we have precedent at the local level for people who have been victimized by state violence for reparations. But here's the, here is the radical thing they did. They didn't just help those survivors have some sense of repair and reconciliation. They also now have insisted that the John Burge torture, which took place over a generation of black Chicagoans, actually gets taught to every public school child in the city of Chicago. Right. Imagine that. Which means that those young people in that city, that one city, will now have a different relationship to understanding the capacity of law enforcement as a tool of racial control and dehumanization, which makes it that much more likely, no guarantees, that any of those young people who then want to be police officers or want to be police chiefs, like the guy down Putney in Charlotte, will actually be a much better human being as an institutional leader. Because these institutions aren't going away. The question is, will they change? Well, and one of the things that I've always, when people ask, why, why do you do what you do? To me, teaching is a radical act of hope. And it's, you know, what's, what's happening is, you know, the, the, the processes that Khalil describes, these are not happening in the Harvards and Yales of the world. They're happening in small institutions, two-year schools, where the, the idea of democratic access to higher education is happening. And, but those are also the institutions, the, the regional state universities, the so-called second and third tiers. These are also the ones that are under financial assault. Uh, and you know the evisceration of education funding. And so if we want to talk about what do we do, there's so many moving parts in this, but if we want to create the space to create the next generation of people who can shape these institutional tools for effective justice and change, we need to pay attention to, to making sure the resources are there to create that space. Because my students come in, I teach in Iowa. I teach rural, white Iowa kids. I teach inner city African-American kids from Omaha and Kansas City. I teach Rwandan refugees uh, from, uh, who have just been in the United States for one or two years. And now they are all in my classroom and there is a hunger and an appetite and a keen interest in going beyond sort of the established narrative that some of them have been taught and some of them are encountering for the first time. How do we keep those spaces open? alive and supported and valued in our society.
to me, that's that's the crux of the issue. And just one one more thing about the your, your question about about protest movements, because I think it's an important one, and I think that it's important that we think about like so Ferguson, right? The activism in Ferguson, which kicked off this this era of protests in in this period. First of all, we need to give that shout out to the folks that put their bodies on the line in Ferguson. Um, but but the fact of the matter is that. Um, one, people really believed that somehow f what happened in Ferguson was only protest, as if they did not have a whole platform, right, of policy demands, and that some of which, many of which, they actually won. I mean, that's the thing. That is the that story about Ferguson ain't been told, right? The fact that they won many of their policy demands in a city that is rampantly racist, institutionally so. Um, and, and so I think that needs to be told. But I also think, why do we need to all move on from protests? <laughs> I mean, uh, do we have we do we have it what we need? I mean, like I don't understand. Like you know what I'm saying? Like we we actually need still to be in the street. Ain't nothing wrong with being in the street. And not only that, but thank God we got so many of these people in the street demanding yeah. freedom and justice because yeah. that wasn't true ten years ago. That wasn't true 10 years ago. My favorite, my favorite Ferguson story is that um, there was a cafe that was on the white side of town. And I had been kind of in the cut. I had been talking to brothers and sisters in the barbershop and dollar store. I was over on the complete other side of town. And then I went over to this town to start getting opinions uh, about what people thought about the protests that were going on. And there's um, a white guy who's like maybe in his mid 50s. He says, are you with the media? And I said, yeah. And he was like, I have a problem with you. You're lying. And I was like, really? Tell me, explain what I'm, what I'm lying about. He was like, you're making it seem like this town is racist. <laughs> and um, I was like, okay, do you think that that's not accurate? And he said, our blacks here are happy. Mississippi, and and I was like, really? Did you just say our? <laughs> like, you feel kind of some okay. way about being spoken of possessively, you know? Like, and I was like, do they know that they're first? Do they know that you're they're you're blacks? They're like, let's begin there. Um, but it was the kind of way that you could be in this place that was two different worlds, and without the protests, without the people actually confronting it, it was for many of these people uh, the first time that they had even countenanced what was happening five blocks over from them in the black part of town. And I also want to say one other thing, because we've been talking as historians, and we don't want to make sure we acknowledge uh, Sister Noliwe Rooks, uh, who is right here, who is a historian as well, and a really wonderful scholar. And anything that I said up here, uh, the, she could have probably said better. So she's the sister. Uh, um, we'll make sure I acknowledge you. So. We're, um, we're going to take, I think, just like one more question because we're almost out of time. Um, so Sorry. the microphone is back here right now, Hi. and if you keep your question. So I'm just, um, I'm curious what the panel has to say about the role that all of these really horrifying images of, um, of black people dying, being, how, how that contributes to the discourse, because this was in the end of uh, the 13th about whether this barrage of, of terrifying images is helping or hurting or how useful is it? Like I, so I'm a teacher and my students, I, uh, high school, uh, all privileged white men, <laughs> um, the news had broke about 
the, um, the shooting outside San Diego. And they saw it happen. They, they were checking on their computers and they saw that it happened. And just candidly, they said, like one of them said, oh, it's another black man and I want to care, but, and then that's where the conversation went. And it's like, we all, you know, people receive these images in a range of ways, but it's the, it's the rawest form of what's happening. And it's, I, I just, I'm wondering what the panel thinks about how those images uh, contribute to the discourse. I don't think we really know um, in the way that we can generalize. Uh, because one of the things 13th does is it shows that that lynching photography was a mechanism for disseminating images of the dismemberment and the emulation um, of black bodies for sport, for celebration, uh, for nationalism, for country. Um, so it, it's not clear that these images change one's relationship to the victim just because they can see it happening. Um, and that, to me, is, means that we, the people who will be moved will be moved. The people who will be agnostic will be agnostic. And those who don't care or think the person brought it on themselves um, will feel generally the same. That is not to say that as a matter of law, these images don't matter. Because as a matter of law, they actually do matter. And as a matter of reporting, and a matter of building uh, data and a, and a knowledge base to actually give, give legitimacy to people fighting these fights, it matters. But those, those are not democratic struggles in the sense that the, the lawmakers um, and the judges and the prosecutors, now they should be. Um, so I don't want to overstate that they don't matter, but there's a difference between spectatorship and the relationship of what happened to a disposition of the case. And in that sense, we need all the cameras. We need all hands, <laughs> literally, um, on deck. I just wanted to, to pick up on that law point and speak, speak personally. I moved to America um, a week before the Eric Garner killing. And the first time I, I left America after having moved here, was, it was bookended by the killing and the, um, the non-indictment of Officer Daniel Pantaleo, who use the illegal chokehold, which was filmed from multiple angles. And I think when I first saw that, that video, I thought, okay, you know, we're watching this, it's horrifying, but at least now we will see this footage used for prosecution. It is unarguable. And that was two and a half years ago. And what we haven't seen is the video footage translate into prosecutions. And you, you kind of going back to Rashomon territory, it's like, Kurosawa, you know, you, you, one person can watch Eric Garner being choked to death, and then you can have an argument with somebody who will also tell you that Black Lives Matter is a, a terrorist organization and that Eric Garner deserved it. So it's a kind of, I, I, you know, I think a lot about documentary and, and how the, the documentary has changed in the era of reality TV and how people are much more aware of construction. Images mean different things to different people. What have you got? I just, I just think that um, three things. One, that um, image without context doesn't do what you think it does. Um, images need context for them to have meaning. And I think that the context is either 
what um, the, the, the dominant society uh, affords, or it is provided by a resistance, like by something else. But it's an active act. Providing context to these images requires an intervention, right? It's not just there on its own. Number two, our audiences are not the same. How I receive the constant image of black bodies dying is not going to be the same as how someone else may receive that image. Um, for me, it is important to, to see it. It is important to stop seeing it. So both are true. Um, you know, and the last thing that I'll say is that, um, you know, uh, people call this, you know, the black, black death porn or what, 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 what's the language that people are being used in, right? Um, because there are, you know, when, wh whether you're talking about the images of people being lynched or you're talking about um, the, you know, in the, in the movie um, 12 Years a Slave, when you see that long sequence where um, he's being hung by his neck and the, f the discomfort, right, of that long, long sequence in the film. But the discomfort for me was, was also the people that you see at the periphery who can watch but can't do anything about it. And that's how I feel, right? I can watch, but I feel like I can't do anything about it. And I do something about it every single day. Uh, I'm out there, I march, I do, you know, I do a lot of things, I'm an activist, that's what I do. But, but I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm watching and I can't do anything about it. And I think millions of black people feel that way. Um, and so that's something that I think we have, to, um, we have to care for ourselves in this way. And that actually organizing is a form of self-care. It's not just about going to take a bath and get your, you know, get your massage and all that. But uh, you know, having agency and, and, collective, uh, and doing, making collective action is a form of self-care. So I just want to say that I think that yes, it matters. And yes, it matters whose hands those images are in. And, and how we represent matters as historians, right? And so one of the things I struggle with in the classroom is, you know, one of the efforts of textbook publishers to diversify their material as well, we'll include more visuals. And so you get all these stock pictures, you know, there's the famous picture of the slave uh, with all the whipping scars Gordon, on his back. Yeah. Gordon, yes, thank you. There are, it, it, I think the most powerful way that it was brought home to me by students, I had some students who believed that Native Americans were extinct, that there were no more Indians. And the reason that they did is because every picture they saw in every history textbook ever was dead Indians. And so images are important and images matter and images can, can teach, but it's also, you know, back to this idea of what, what, is it just violence porn? And is it just, is it doing the things that we want it to do with our students? And, and are we contextualizing and are we including other images, other things for a more full representation? I think right now there may be good intentions to quote unquote diversify the visual materials that are available for us as history educators, but I think that those could backfire in some ways too. I don't think it has to be either or. I think it can be both of those things. This is a question of what the net effect is. Um, and so we go back to slave narratives and they had a tremendous uh, impact in awakening people to the moral horrors of slavery, but slave narratives were also consumed in the 19th century as pornography, um, because there was literature that talked explicitly about sex and sexual violation, and so people read it in this way. Uh, and so was this somebody who read something and was horrified, or someone who read it and was titillated? 
Um, and it's hard to know like what the, the net effect of those things will be. And I also think that um, there is, the reason I think that these images matter and why I think they should be shown, however, is for a different dynamic, which is that this country has been, since its inception, because of its belief in exceptionalism that has only grown more prominent with time, it is also tremendously um, conscientious or self-conscious about international perception. Uh, so the United States abolished uh, the slave trade in Washington, D.C., made it illegal to sell or buy enslaved human beings in Washington, D.C., not because they were attempting to get rid of slavery, but because there are diplomats from other countries that come to Washington, D.C. In 1850, they said, we don't want people going back saying, hey, I saw them selling someone um, you know, in public. Uh, when Frederick Douglass went to London, he did it for a specific reason. Uh, decades later, when Ida B. Wells went to the UK, she did it for that same reason. Uh, and so when people have been able to leverage international opinion, it does have an effect. Uh, and this is one quick anecdote. anecdote. Uh, my colleague, I have a colleague who is a retired diplomat, an African American, he told me about when he was first entering the diplomatic corps, and he was in the embassy in Ghana, and this is not long after Ghanaian independence. And at that point, the American embassy was directly across the street from the Soviet embassy. And this is in the midst of the, the civil rights era. And the Soviet embassy had a huge billboard. He said he woke up every day and looked across the street at the Soviet embassy, which had a huge billboard of a black child being attacked by a police dog. And he said, now why did they put this up? Because the Soviets were saying to the Ghanaians, if this is how they treat the black people in their country, how do you think they will treat you? And so the United States was very conscientious about those sorts of things. They wanted those images out of the public eye. And so I think as difficult and traumatizing as they are, it does have a particular capacity to, if not awaken people's consciences, to embarrass them into action. So um, 13th will is uh, 13th is debuting on Netflix next Friday, October 7th. Uh, if you haven't seen the film, or even if you have, um, I know a number of us look forward to seeing it again. Um, we felt after uh, watching this film here at the Film Society and listening and hearing um, so much about um, so much from some of the people represented on this panel that we wanted to talk more about it. And I want to thank Malkia, Ashley, Jelani, Khalil, Kevin, for not only your work in this film, but for being so generous with your time this evening and talking with us today. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, 
please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.